This is Fergus Hodgson with the Impunity Observer podcast, and I'm so delighted to be with you interviewing Jessica Fawn today. She is Director of Policy Studies with the Center for Immigration Studies, that's CIS.org. She is the, the, the Director of Policy Studies, and she has a background as a Foreign Service Officer with the State Department. She's been with them for decades now, so she has incredible experience. And as you know, at the Impunity Observer, we take illegal immigration as a crucial topic that we cover for two reasons. One, because obviously it reflects a breakdown in the rule of law. And two, because since so many people coming to the United States originate from Central America, it reflects, let's say, a failure in that region. Now, there's a heck of a lot going on. And Ms. Vaughn, welcome to the show. And please tell us, how is this more out of control than normal? I, I read all these very, let's say, I'm not going to say sensationalist, but let's say just say, say dire headlines about the immigration situation to the United States that it seems like everything is going up. And I just feel like every year we hear about more caravans, more migrants, and we think, how can it be more than before? It's, it can be per perplexing as someone who's not full-time uh, digesting this, this topic. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be with you. And yes, the situation at the border today and over the last year is different from what we've experienced before. And that is because, in fact, in the two decades before now, the United States actually made pretty significant progress in securing the border by gradually boosting the size of the border patrol, adding infrastructure, partly in the form of barriers like fences, um, but also in technology, sensors and cameras and so on, so that we had been doing a better and better job all the time of controlling illegal migration over that land border. The problem is that, you know, even if we had a 2,000 mile impenetrable wall or other barrier at the US-Mexico border, it's meaningless unless the policies that are in place actually impose some consequences for illegal entry. And that's been the recent problem is that, in fact, there has been, in effect, a catch and release policy for large groups of certain types of migrants coming. And that's why we've seen this increasing diversity in the flow. What we're seeing now is not only bigger numbers of people who are coming to the border, but more and more people who are being allowed to stay. And the word is getting out so that not just people from Central America, but from all over the world know that if they can make it to that border and they arrive with a child, or if they say that they fear return to their home country, in other words, say that they're seeking asylum from persecution, that the U.S. policy now under the Biden administration is to let them stay for an indefinite period, in many cases get a work permit, and so live there for years without consequences, whether they go through their due process in immigration court or not. So there's a powerful incentive now to come that is uh, really driving this. But also what's happening is that the Border Patrol, which is tasked with policing the border itself and catching illegal migrants is so bogged down in dealing with all of the families and kids and asylum seekers that, that they're taken off the line. And that's letting a lot of illicit traffic of people who don't want to be caught and released taking, you know, causing problems in other parts of the border. And we have a name for that, the so-called gotaways who are getting in that we know they're getting in because we have all this great technology that I mentioned, 
but they're not being apprehended by the border patrol. And those are the more problematic cases. That's where, for example, if you're uh, a gang member or you've been deported before, or you want to come and, you know, do something illicit, you know, drug smuggling or whatever, that's how you're going to go through. So it's, it's different because of the sheer volume of crossers and the diversity in who is coming. And so that's, what's really so different now. And, and it's hard to exaggerate you know, the, the extreme growth that has occurred in just the last year, uh, it's, it's more than doubled. And it's really because of the policies, not because of the infrastructure that we've put up. You know, that's really the, the weak link in U.S. border security is the fact that we're giving everyone a huge incentive, creating a product for human traffickers and human smugglers to take advantage of. And they're making so much money at it that it enriches them personally. It allows them to strengthen their criminal organizations. And that is contributing, unfortunately, to instability in the countries that are, are transit, on, are along the route to the U.S. border. Because these criminal groups have so much cash to throw around now, they're in a better position to bribe or pay off government officials, law enforcement, especially in these other countries. And, and that just really is unsettling to any civil attempt to strengthen civil society in these countries. And, and I believe that the pull of migration to the United States from some of these countries, especially in Northern Central America, is hollowing out some of these communities, you know, with all of the, the people who are working age and want to raise a family, they're coming to the United States rather than staying to try to build a life in their home country. And, and I think that's a, a problem also. Yeah, just a little bit of an anecdote there. It is, I lived in Guatemala for two years, and it's true that Guatemala's best, best export is the people, Guatemalan people. And the percentage of GDP now that comes from remittances to these countries is out of control, right? So I think in Honduras, it's up to almost 20%. It's, it's a very high proportion of their economic activity. And that's a problem. A lot of countries sort of justify their ambivalence about this illegal migration because they've talked themselves into believing that the remittances are really good for these countries. And 20%, that's, that's a huge share of their gross domestic product. But the problem is, is that remittances are really not a substitute for an economic plan or a development plan because you can't, the government, not that the government should try to control how revenues like that are used, but economists have found that these remittances do not really work as well as uh, other kinds of economic development because they're focused on a few people who receive them and consumer spending, not creating, for example, manufacturing capacity or helping agricultural industry or anything that would benefit the population at large. They really don't work that way, unfortunately. They go into building houses and consumer goods for the people who get them, but nothing that would serve Serve as the foundation for stronger economies in these countries, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot, so much to say about that, and I tend to agree that yeah, when people are working abroad as low low skilled laborers, they're not at home building businesses or learning the skills that would help their countries develop. Now, so yeah, you basically said that the 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 U.S. has the manpower and the technology 
but is lacking the actual enforcement. Is that a, a fair statement? That's right. The reality is, is that there are no consequences for trying to come or few consequences for most of the people who are trying to come illegally and they're succeeding and they're telling their friends and family back in their home countries that they're succeeding. So there's this huge incentive, like why not now? Why not take advantage of it? You're going to be able to succeed in getting into the United States and living for years. So that's just drawing more and more people from more and more countries to try and do it. Yeah. And just my take as someone who's, who's lived off and on in the United States for many years now is that unless you're actually committing a serious crime, the chance of your deportation is essentially nil. Is that, is that also correct? That's exactly right. That is, in fact, the policy of the Biden administration. They've imposed severe restrictions on ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That's the agency inside the United States that's responsible for immigration enforcement in the inside of the country. They're told now that the only cases for deportation that they can pursue are people who've committed the most serious kinds of crimes, felonies. Um, they're not policing um, employers to make sure that they're only hiring legal workers. They're not allowed to, uh, you know, to remove people who, you know, skip out on their immigration hearings or anything like that. So that's right. The chances of getting deported from the interior are very small. And that's another incentive to come because you'll be allowed to stay here and live as if you are here legally, right in plain sight of immigration officials. And so... Yeah, you've described the current, let's say, doubling of illegal immigration to the United States as a tsunami. This is from one of your latest articles referring, but wait for it, folks. Yeah, so, so this is really, the tsunami is almost going to get worse, right? So this, why is this Title 42 so important? And the way you characterized it, characterized it in your article was interesting to me that it's almost this uh, very useful little valve that one can be played with arbitrarily. Uh, because on the one hand, an administration can use this as justification to deport easily or quickly, but then also not use it as well. It's a, it's confusing. So what is Title 42 and when, if ever, will it be going away? Well, Title 42 is a section of the U.S. public health law that allows the president to exclude individual, really anyone that is deemed to be a threat to the public health of the United States. So that could be an individual who may have a particular contagious disease, or it could be people coming from a particular country if there's a, a public health problem there. Or, you know, for example, uh, the Ebola outbreak in Africa a few years ago, or it can be almost everyone, um, as we saw during the most recent pandemic. And so it's, it's a very powerful authority that the president can use and that President Trump started using at the border in the context of the COVID pandemic. This was very convenient um, because what Title 42 allows is for the government to simply expel people who are arriving rather than putting them through specific deportation proceedings or having to hear asylum claims. Uh, it basically could just turn them back to where they came from, which in this case was mostly Mexico. Yeah, let's clarify. These people are literally captured in the process of entering illegally, correct? Yeah, so there's not really any doubt about what they're doing. Or they may, it can be people coming through the legal ports of entry also, but it's mostly people crossing illegally. So first what happened was the Biden administration cut back on use of Title 42 
under Trump, pretty much everybody had been turned away. But the Biden administration immediately said, well, anyone, any unaccompanied minors crossing illegally, we're not going to apply Title 42 to them. So they'll be allowed to enter. And then they said, anyone arriving with children will not be subject to Title 42. So they've been uh, released all of this time into the U.S. And then they announced that on May 23rd of this year, that they would lift use of Title 42 altogether. So this has been very controversial. Isn't there a court case? I'm, I'm, just forgive me, I'm, I'm not following this, that, the, the Title 42 so closely, but isn't this lifting of it impeded by, I mean, some legal proceedings? What's going on with that? Well, yes, the, um, a couple of states led by Texas, which is where most of the border is, filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration and said, hey, it's too soon to lift Title 42. And if you do, according to the government's own predictions, illegal immigration is going to triple even over the extremely high level that we have now. So, you know, you can't do this. You haven't followed the proper procedure. You haven't considered our interests. And by the way, you're keeping pandemic-related restrictions in other aspects of life. So, you know, which is it? You're asking for all this money, for example, from Congress to fight the pandemic, and yet you're saying the pandemic is over at the border so we can process everyone normally. So one federal judge agreed with the state's arguments, but has given the Biden administration time to uh, respond to that. And that's what's going to happen next. We're going to wait to see what the judge thinks, whether he's going to allow uh, President Biden to lift Title 42 or require him to keep it in place. It's kind of an interesting legal question for all aspects of life. But for the border states, they they want restrictions in place. But, you know, and the ironic thing is it's been very convenient for the Biden administration to have this authority because it's allowed them to kind of moderate the illegal immigration, um, the incentives for people to come to illegally because they're kind of picking and choosing who they're going to let in. But on the other hand, it's still a lot of people. Yeah, it gives a great deal of discretion to the administration as to how they choose to apply or enforce the law or not. But you know, our regular immigration law has tools to control illegal immigration. So it's not like we, you know, the government needs Title 42 to enforce immigration laws, but the Biden administration doesn't want, you know, would rather use Title 42 than immigration law itself. It, it does seem arbitrary because, of course, my understanding is that you still need, if you're not a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, you still need to be vaccinated, for example, to come into the country. Where So if you were to lift Title well, 42. Actually, you don't have to be vaccinated. You have to be tested. Okay, so still testing, but like you said, there's still some discrepancy there that there's still a requirement for some, but not for others. Now, this tsunami that is set to appear, a lot of this rests on people claiming asylum. This is a problem because many people more broadly would think, well, if you come from a, a war-torn or very violent country, you're just seeking asylum, but of course that is not sufficient. What is the problem with, with all these people claiming asylum? The problem is that our immigration law, which has you know, really not been adjusted to meet these huge flows of people asking for asylum, is um, set up in a way that gives people a lot of benefit of the doubt. 
Um, so if an administration wants to use it that way. So under US law, you qualify for um, asylum if you can show that you've uh, been uh, or face a real threat of persecution because of your race, religion, or uh, political views, or membership in a particular group. And very few people actually can meet that standard, but we allow people to ask for asylum and we'll consider it, get offered them a hearing if there's something called a credible fear. Basically, if it, if there's a possibility that somebody's story could be true, we're going to let them make an asylum claim. But under the law, people who ask, who say that they have a fear of return home are supposed to be held in custody until their case is decided. But starting in 2008, under the Obama administration, they started just releasing people who had asked for asylum rather than keeping them in detention or some kind of custody. And especially, and then a federal judge said, yeah, you have to do that as long as they um, have a child in the family. If they arrive with a child, they all have to be released within 21 days. And that was a problem for the Trump administration too. They responded by getting other countries to offer asylum or saying that if you passed through certain other countries, we weren't gonna consider you for asylum. And so the numbers of, of asylum seekers went way down. The Biden administration went back to the Obama policy, which was as long as you say that you fear return, we're gonna let you in, give you a, a court date. And now there have been so many people doing it. Those are years into the future. Yeah, I hear too that even if people do turn up to their court date and they're, they're, they're just like you said, li living in plain sight, that there's no real deportation, that, that they could just go to the court date and then get another court date. What, what exactly happens in the follow-up? Well, what we've learned over time is that, first of all, half of them who say that they fear return don't even bother to fill out the asylum application to begin with. Those who do, the half that do, a lot of them, when you go to immigration court, the first thing that happens is the immigration judge will give you a six-month continuance to find a lawyer. And often they'll give a second six-month continuance to allow, give the lawyer time to build a case. It's, it's a quite generous due process. Let's just put it that way. Half of the people won't show up at these hearings eventually. And then of those who do, there's only about 10% of them are found by the judge to actually qualify for asylum based on fear of persecution. Those who are ordered removed, usually at that point will just give up and not show up for removal. So there, and the judge's orders right now under Biden policies are not being enforced by ICE. So it's really a dysfunctional system that, you know, basically encourages people to make these claims at the border, knowing they're not have to going, they're not going to have to comply at, at some point. This opens up a whole can of worms, of course, because I often wonder to myself, well, how do you even get work without a social security number? What, are, what do all these people do? Different things. Some of them will just work illegally. They'll get fake papers. You know, sometimes it's the smuggling organizations that help them do that or their friends and family. There's a lot of employers who will look the other way at someone's status. And, and now they don't fear any repercussions from the government. Some people who stick with the asylum process, if they have a, a lawyer, they, after 180 days, they can apply for a work permit and the government will grant that. So if they do show up early on in the process, they can get a work permit that's good for two years. 
and they'll take advantage of that. So, and once they get a social security number, they can keep working on that social security number, even if they abscond from their asylum application. So there, there are all kinds of ways to game this system. The sad thing is, is there are people in the world who really would qualify for asylum based on persecution. And those cases are caught in this backlog and they're much delayed in getting their cases heard and you know, being able to stay here permanently. Yeah, it is. It is a tremendous mess. And like you say, the problem with all the hollow applications or people who are just, to be frank, just economic migrants and is that they get in the way of the legitimate cases. Further, one point which listeners might not have caught on was the way that you said that many of these migrants have already left their home country and, and gone through other countries. So that is an immediate testament to the fact that they're not necessarily fleeing persecution. They're fleeing to get to the United States or get to a certain destination place. So if, if you're from Honduras, but have gone through Mexico, obviously you're no longer persecuted when you're in Mexico, right? So you're no longer in a persecuted country. So what is the basis for you then to go on to the United States? Really you just want to get there as opposed to flee persecution. Right. And some of them are quite open about that. Like the Cubans who've been living in South America for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they certainly do not need, you know, they've already fled from the conditions. They're no, long, no longer under communist tyranny, yes. And been accepted to live permanently in places like Chile or Brazil. This is, and just as we wrap up here, there's, there's maybe an underlying theme, which when we discuss all these details, isn't necessarily clear. And I want to read just a, a, a sentence from your latest article on, on Title 42. And that the headline is no imaginable scenario to avoid another disaster, which means just an open, open season on terms of in terms of illegal, illegal immigration. And you said this is re referring to the Democratic Party. When their party regains control, they can give green cards and cultivate a new generation of loyal Democratic Party voters. So, how much do you think this is a, a long-term political calculation to bring in loyal supporters, or do you, as, at CSU, do you avoid? addressing that too much? Well, we don't avoid it completely because there are some individuals in the Democratic Party who've actually expressed this as a, a long-term strategy for building the Democrat Party, that if they are generous on immigration now, even illegal immigration, that it will pay off later, that people you know, will remember that if they are come here even illegally and eventually are able to be put um, on a path to citizenship and become citizens, that they're going to reward the party that gave them that. I do believe firmly that there are Democrats and Republicans alike who believe that that will pay off for them politically. However, I'm skeptical that they are correct in that calculus because it hasn't really worked out that way, especially in recent decades, that, you know, that immigrants have much the same, you know, once they settle here. Once they become and, Americans. Yeah, they yeah. have the same values as other Americans and are not necessarily going to feel that they have to, you know, express loyalty to any particular party as a result. And they tend to assimilate to the political environment in which they settle. Like if you're from Cuba, they've a lot have settled in Florida, for example, where there's a certain political culture and many of them end up being Republicans. Same in Texas, not so in Chicago or New York City or California. So I think it's a pretty risky 
political calculus that that also may be costing them support among key constituencies in the United States? Yes, it's, it's very hard to know because, of course, immigrants are much more aware also of the problems of illegal immigrants, right? So they would know, let's say, the, dr- the drug trafficking, human trafficking issues and the breakdown in, yeah, in the, the rule of law when it comes to labor employment or whatever it may be. So it is difficult to, to say. And people who live on the border, let's say in a place like El Paso, they're, they're extremely aware of the violence on the border and uh, you know want some, some protection there. So there's so much to say about this, and I encourage people to check out the Center for Immigration Studies, cis.org. You can also follow uh, Jessica on Twitter. It is Jessica V underscore CIS, and she has lots of updates there, so it's, it's an active account. Is there any other place people should go to to follow your work or subscribe? We put everything on our website. Um, we, we have our reports, we have videos, podcasts, and we try to put as much and share as much information as we can. Um, so check out the what we have there and the work of some of my colleagues as well. Beautiful. You know, you have a great podcast too, so I recommend that one. Otherwise, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure.